This is NBA Sound System Live, featured on NBA.com sites around the world and archived on the NBA Sound System podcast feed, where you get your podcasts by searching NBA Sound System. Thank you for joining us. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, each with the handle at NBA Sound System, or visit us at NBASoundSystem.com for more. Now, NBA Sound System Live. It is indeed NBA Sound System Live, knee-deep in the 2020 NBA Finals. We are not in the bubble. We are here with you across the world, in Canada, in India, in Australia. NBA Sound System Live, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific. Of course, you can hear us all the time streaming on NBASoundSystem.com. Carlin Gay alongside Scott Rafferty. Scott uh, we have a final series now to talk about, and we'll get into that and so much more on this episode. We'll break down whether or not Anthony Davis will have a bounce-back game. We'll talk about who played better in Game 3 or who played worse in Game 3. The question I have to ask Scott is, did the Heat play better or did the Lakers play worse than they did in the first two games? But we have to start with the man of the hour, too sweet to be sour. That man is Jimmy Butler coming off of an all-time performance in the NBA Finals. I mean, was there? He, he did everything in that game. 40 points, 13 assists, 11 rebounds, 2 steals, 2 blocks, and more importantly, a W for the Miami Heat, making this a 2-1 series lead leading into Game 4. Scott, where do you rank that among some of the best Finals performances that you've seen? It's high up there. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I know afterwards Jimmy Butler said that wasn't the best game he's ever played. I think he he mentioned like a rec league game that he played when he was younger. (laughs) But this was no doubt the best game of his career. Um, And quite frankly, probably the best game that we've seen yet in these playoffs. And it's an all-timer. I mean... He became the third player in in NBA history to record a 40-point triple-double. The two other guys, Jerry West and LeBron James. He's the first player to ever outscore, out-rebound, and out-assist LeBron in a finals game. And he, he scored or assisted on 73 points, which is apparently tied for the second most in a finals game. So just on every single level, this was an all-time performance from one of the best players in the league right now. Um, and, and the thing that really stood out to me in this one is that he knew that the Heat were in trouble. Down 2-0 to the Lakers, without Bam Adebayo and Goran Dragic, this was you know, the must-win of all must-win games um, for the Heat to avoid going down a 3-0 hole and the season series basically being done. Um, and there was a really good stat from John Schumann from NBA.com. Um, according to Second Spectrum, Jimmy Butler had the ball in his hands for 11.7 minutes in Game 3. Wow. That is up from 5.6 minutes per game in the playoffs prior to that game. So he basically doubled the amount he had the ball in his hands. And this is something J.J. Redick talked about on his podcast. Um, obviously, J.J. is a former teammate of Jimmy Butler. And he said that you know Jimmy is a guy who likes to ease his way into games from a scoring perspective. He likes to get guys involved early, make the right play. But it really was in this game, he was on attack mode from the opening tip. And I think he played, what, like 45 of possible 48 minutes? Um, and he kind of just had his foot on the gas the entire time and dominated both ends of the floor. So it, it, it really was just a spectacular performance from Jimmy Butler. 11, almost 11 or 11 plus minutes of having the ball in your hand. That's, that's almost a full quarter. Like that doesn't even happen with point guards at some point. Like the ball normally moves so much. Jimmy Butler really uh, did control that basketball game. The one thing that stuck out to me, which I'm, I, I'm sure stuck out to you, I'm surprised mm-hmm. you didn't mention it. 
He did not shoot a single three-point shot. He did not attempt a three, didn't make one. Didn't. He was all inside the arc, going to work, getting to the line. He had 14 free throws in the game. And we talked about it, you know, in multiple episodes during the regular season. That was one of your concerns about Jimmy Butler's game, especially in the clutch. Mm-hmm. The fact that he he was not as efficient as he had been in, in years past, especially from three-point range. He wasn't efficient from three-point range all season long, but especially in the clutch, he struggled from three-point range. He didn't even bother taking a three in, in game three. And uh, it worked out for him. He was still he still shot 70 percent from the field, and as I said, he got to line fourteen times, which uh, which added to that forty point total. Um, is that something that could be sustainable for Jimmy Butler going forward, or does he have to at least attempt some threes to keep the Lakers' defense honest? It, it depends on who he's surrounded by, because the the one of the interesting things about this series is obviously the Heat are without Bam Adebayo, who I think you can make the case has been the the best player for the Heat to this point of the playoffs or, or entering the finals. And obviously he's been out since game one uh, with that shoulder and neck injury. And in his place, the Heat have gone to Myers Leonard and Kelly Olenek, two guys who their, their greatest value in offense is their three-point shooting. So now you're looking at a team that has four three-point shooters on the court at all times surrounding Jimmy Butler. And we've seen this with, with guys this season. You know, Russell Westbrook was this case. This guy, Russell Westbrook, has never been a good three-point shooter. But the reasons the Rockets made trading Clint Capella at the deadline was to surround him with four three-point shooters to open up the space for him to, to attack the basket just relentlessly and play to his strengths. Um, similar case with DeMar DeRozan in San Antonio. So I think that's kind of what you're seeing with Jimmy Butler in these finals is that, I mean, he's basically the only non-three-point shooter for the, for the Miami Heat for basically all that, that game, um, save for a few minutes with Andre Iguodala and whatnot. Um, and it really does just mean that he doesn't have to really ever settle for threes because more times than not, his choices are either put your head down and get to the basket uh, where you can finish at the rim or draw a foul, or if there's help, he's got to kick it out to one of four shooters standing on the three-point line. Um, so, you know, if, if Bam Adebayo comes back, I, I think that will impact Jimmy Butler. That's not to say that this team is worse with Bam Adebayo because that guy is an all-star. He's a monster on both ends of the court. But him playing and not playing does kind of change the structure of this team. Um, and I, I think you kind of saw that to the extreme in game three with Jimmy Butler. He kind of used the LeBron James method, didn't he? Like, I mean, I know LeBron James is a, you know, a known three-point shooter, a capable three-point shooter, but for the majority of his, you know, his game is is within the three-point arc. And, mm-hmm. you know, he, he kind of either bullies his way to the rim or finds someone that could hit an open shot. And Jimmy Butler really did do that at a high level in game three we're going to answer the question if that's sustainable in a second but first we want to remind you to check out sound system fc if you are a football fan a footy fan you should already be subscribed to listen to Lawrence and Bo talk about what's going on in the world of soccer weekly last week they had the uh, champions league draw recap they also touched on la liga premier league liga mx and i think they give you some insight into what's happening with their fantasy teams just like everyone else in america always concerned about their fantasy teams lawrence and Bo have you covered over on sound system fc so if you haven't already subscribed go ahead stop what you're doing right now you could listen to us and do it at the same time multitask go over type in sound system fc wherever you get your podcast subscribe today all right the big question game three it was a win for the heat we have a series, but is that sustainable, Scott? Is that sustainable the way that the Heat were able to win game three with Jimmy Butler going for 40? 
they didn't have Bam. They didn't have Goran Dragic. We don't know if they're going to be back for Game 4. Still, hours before Game 4 tips off tonight, we don't know uh, whether or not they'll be back in the lineup. But there are things, I think, that you and I both take, take away from that Game 3 win that can be carried over if you're the Miami Heat. So first for the Heat, what what really did you hang on to out of that Game 3 win outside of Jimmy Butler's performance that leads you to believe that they can get back into the series given that they keep doing what they were doing in Game 3? There, there are three big things for me for the Heat based on that Game 3, um, in addition to all the stuff we just talked about with Jimmy Butler. One is that they just forced a ton of turnovers. Um, they forced 19 turnovers, Lakers turnovers, uh, LeBron James had eight of those. That's up from 12 turnovers in game one for the Lakers and nine in game two. And not only that, the Miami Heat converted those opportunities. They scored 21 points off of turnovers. So that that, that right there is huge. Another one is that the Heat were actually able to limit the Lakers uh, in the paint, where they were basically the most dominant team in the league during the regular season and in the playoffs, um, which is obviously an extension of LeBron James and Anthony Davis, who are two of the best paint scorers in the league. And I think last but not least, and this is probably the biggest one, is that they were actually, they, they were much more successful at limiting second chance opportunities. It, it was more of a case in game two. The Lakers scored 21 second chance points. And we, we saw that. I mean, there were so many times when it felt like uh, the, the Heat kind of got the Lakers to take the shot they wanted out of the zone. And then one of Dwight Howard or, or Anthony Davis would just kind of swoop in, overpower their way to the basket and just get an easy putback. Uh, and that really killed them in that game. And in game three, um, they limited them to, I think, six second chance points. Um, so that's down from 21 to six going from game two to game three. So I think, you know, some of that is like the Lakers were sloppy with their turnovers at the start of the game. Um, you got to give the Heat credit for kind of jumping out of the coming out of the gate strong and, and really providing the first punch. I think that kind of took them out of their rhythm. Um so I, I think those are the kind of things that if you are a Heat fan or the Heat coaching staff, you can kind of hang your hat on and say, look, if we do these things, we can make this competitive and potentially win some games. On the flip side, I, I think that's the worst game we're going to see from Anthony Davis in these finals. Um, and again, you've got to give credit to the Miami Heat. I think they, you know, the first few games, they were kind of gifting him um, post-ups or entry passes from LeBron James and Rajon Rondo and all this. And they made a much more much more of an effort to, to get in front of him, to front him and, and get them to make passes over the defender. Um, and they also sent some well-timed double teams. And you can see that it kind of messed with Davis at the start of the game. And that coupled with his early foul trouble, I think, really took him out of his rhythm. Uh, so I, I think, you know, that's a thing for the Lakers. But from the Heat's perspective, if they can kind of, you know, force more turnovers, lock down the paint, live with the Lakers shooting threes, and also limit their second chance opportunities, I think that's kind of the recipe for success for them moving forward in the series. Yeah, we'll get to the Lakers in a second and and, and what they can do to uh, to kind of bounce back from that game three. But uh, I'm with you in, in terms of what the Heat did and it being something that I think could be sustainable to really and truly make this a series. We know they're shorthanded. We know that we can't expect Jimmy Butler to have an all-time great finals performance uh, for the next three wins that the Heat can potentially have in this series. But there are things, like you said, uh, that, that can change. And forcing the Lakers into turnovers, it sounds like an easy thing. Uh, but the Heat really were able to do that right out the gate. 19 turnovers, as you mentioned. But they, I think they had 10 of those in the first quarter. And for the first time, it felt like in ages that the Heat were playing with the win. The Heat won every single quarter 
in in game three. They did not lose a single a single quarter in game three. That's a good recipe for success. Getting points in the paint, they had 52 of them, as you mentioned. That's a, a recipe for success. But the big thing to me that stuck out the most is every time uh, the Lakers seemed like they were going to take control of the game, uh, the Heat punched right back. It, it, they didn't get down on themselves. They stuck to the game plan, and they worked their way back into the game and back in the lead. And I think they're, they're, they're now confident. Uh, you know, they were confident coming into the series, you know, that they could play with these guys. But the, the first two games happened so quickly and they got into such big holes that they had to dig themselves out of that, it, you know, they knew they had to start early, get out in front and, and, and really kind of, uh, uh, you know, put the Lakers on their heels. And that's the first time we saw that in the series where the, the Lakers were having to punch back. And they did at times, but the Heat had a counter every single time. The one thing that stuck out to me the most is that the Lakers settled for so many three-point shots in this one. Uh, Scott, they took 42 three-point attempts. And that doesn't kill me as, as much as it, it should, but it's who took those three-point attempts that really stuck out to me. You have Markeith Morris, who actually shot the ball pretty well from three-point range in game three. But if Markeith Morris is going to take 11 three-point attempts at any point, in any final series, no matter what team he's on, the opposing team should be smiling from ear to ear. They should encourage that, that Markeith Morris is enjoying taking as many threes as he did in Game 3. Same with Kyle Kuzma. Again, he shot the ball well, but I will live with the fact if Kyle Kuzma is shooting eight-plus three-pointers in a game, and, and that's that's where the, the Lakers plan on beating you. If that is the case, if Markeith Morris and Kyle Kuzma are shooting 19 to close, close to 23s between the two of them in a game, if I'm the Miami Heat, I'm saying knock yourselves out. If we lose that way, then we deserve to lose the series. And that's by design. Uh, you could really tell in Game Three that they were they, they were coming up really short on their closeouts on shooters. They were packing the paint, um, even not only for LeBron and Anthony Davis, but really anyone who was driving to the basket. It, it's fun if you go back and watch some of the shots that the Lakers missed in that game and kind of freeze frame where the pass came from. It, there's times where there's all five defenders standing in the paint and they're just completely ignoring the guy who's standing on the three-point line because, again, like, you can't just give guys wide-open threes in the NBA. They're too good. Right. They're going to make them at a high enough rate. But for the Lakers, the, the priority is to shut down the paint. And if you can do that and then contest those threes well enough or at least bait them into that and contest them, that's kind of the recipe for success. And, again, it's so much easier said than done um, because even, even when you have two or three guys packing the paint, it's still really hard to stop LeBron and AD because they're just so powerful and so talented. But I do think, you know, th that that's kind of the, the other thing that you can pick up from Game 3 if you're the Heat um, and carry in moving forward. That's also just what's fun about these Game 4s, right? Because it really the Lakers dominated Games 1 and 2. The Heat made their adjustments in Game 3, and now this is the point where it's like, okay, are those adjustments actually going to change this series? Are the Heat working with something, or will the Lakers just have a response and that's it? Um, so that, that's that's going to be the really exciting thing to watch tonight, regardless of, of if Adebayo plays or not, which obviously we still don't know. Yeah, that's obviously the biggest question mark hanging over the heads of, I think, both teams heading into Game 4. Let's talk about the Lakers and what they could do better uh, than they did in Game 3. It was their first loss, so you don't want to overreact. But that being said, they are the favorites. They have a shorthanded team in the Miami Heat standing in front of them that are missing two of their starters that have carried them to this, this final series. They, had a, you know, they watched Jimmy Butler go nuts on them in Game 3. They obviously want to stop that. 
Uh, but they did a good job of kind of neutralizing the rest of the team, except for some moments here and there. And they had a horrible performance by his standards from Anthony Davis. I know he was dealing with foul trouble, but when you're a star, a superstar like Anthony Davis is, who is generally always in the top 10, top five discussion of best players in the league, best big man in the league, if you want to discuss whether it's between him and Nikola Jokic, there's a lot of people that would say that Anthony Davis is the best big man in the league. He had an awful performance, again, by his standards in game three. We expect him to bounce back, so that's one thing. But the second thing is, if the Heat are going to allow the Lakers to take those open threes, they have to make them. And over the course of the regular season, I think that was the biggest question mark about this Laker team. Games one and two, they were knocking them down. Game three, they weren't hitting them as much, and they end up losing the game. So is that something that they should be worried about, Scott, headed into game four and beyond? Well, I think you can't, like you said, you can't overreact to one game. And you would think that, like Danny Green and Contavious Caldwell-Pope, who have basically been their two best three-point shooters throughout the year, were one for seven on threes. Rondo, who's been shooting the lights out in the bubble, 0 for three on threes. Um, Alex Caruso, who's, who's a decent three-point shooter, one for three. So I, I think some of those guys, and also, like you said, by the way, Markeith Morris probably is not going to go five for 11 from three in another game. So that, that, that's the flip side. Um, I, but I do kind of trust, even though the Lakers were a below, I think they were a below average three-point shooting team during the regular season, I do expect guys like Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Danny Green to bounce back um, because otherwise, yeah, the, the the game plan is clear from the heat at this point. They're going to do all they can to shut down the paint for LeBron and AD. And if they're going to win two more games, they're going to have to make a, a decent amount of threes to kind of open up that space or punish them. Um, so, yeah, the, the three-point shooting is going to be huge moving forward. But like you said, too, for the Lakers, they did shoot well in games one and two. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think that game three was kind of them regressing to the mean. That that seems to me more of an aberration. Um, so if they can make some more threes, and like you said, Anthony Davis has a bounce-back game. And by the way, Le- LeBron had a really good stat line at the end of game three, but that, that was by far and away his weakest game of the finals so far. Um, and I expect him to be much better in tonight's game. So I think, you know, if you're the Lakers, even with all those adjustments that the Heat's ma- Heat made, you get a little bit better of a game from LeBron, you get a, a much better game from Anthony Davis, and some of those threes drop from guys that you expect to, um, I, I, that, that'll go a long way. You know what I'm not afraid of if I'm the Miami Heat? I understand that the three-point shooting uh, is something that the Lakers should be concerned about. Um, I'm also not afraid to put the Lakers at the foul line. They have a bunch of guys that just struggle from the foul line. And I'm not just talking about under you know pressure situations. I'm just talking about in general. They're, they're not a good foul shooting team. For the playoffs, they're shooting 75.2% from the foul line. Scott, that's not good. That is not good from, from an NBA team. In the regular season, they were third to last in the regular season. They shot 72.9% from the foul line. Scott, that's not good. Only, I mean, if it wasn't for the Pelicans and the New York Knicks, they'd be dead last. And those are two franchises you don't want to compare yourself to when you're sitting two wins away from winning an NBA title in any stat category. And this is just, uh, you know, it all comes down to me for, you know, a guy like LeBron James who lives at the line, he can't shoot 66% from the free throw line in any game. Uh, Anthony Davis is a terrific three-point or free throw shooter. He can't go to the line just two times in a game. He, he can't have less free throw attempts than Kyle Kuzma. So Anthony Davis will be better there, and I think LeBron James has to start knocking them down because we haven't had a close game yet, and we're going to have a close game at some point in this NBA Finals, 
and it could be game four. And it's it's going to come down and hurt the Lakers at some point that they're shooting 75% from the free throw line, and they've been getting away with it to this point in the playoffs. I will say this, though. There's a big difference. Like, if Dwight Howard gets an offensive rebound and there's four minutes left in the game, yes, you want to foul him in that situation and send him to the free throw line rather than giving him a layup. But I, I don't think you can risk getting into foul trouble early in a quarter and then having LeBron and AD out there because LeBron, even though his free throw shooting has been a little up and down in his career, he knows how to draw contact, he knows how to get to the line, and he's going to do that. Um, and Anthony Davis, like you said, he's good at drawing fouls and he will make them at a high percentage when he gets there. So I think it's, it, it's on one hand, you, you can probably foul. There's certain guys on this team that you can foul. But on the other, I don't think you want to risk LeBron and Anthony Davis being in a position where they, they know that they can you know barrel to the basket, draw contact and either get a layup. Because um, the other thing, too, is if, if Jimmy Butler has four fouls in the fourth quarter, then suddenly he can't play as aggressively on defense and things like that. So I, I think there's a very fine line between, you know, saying you, you, you want to send a team to the foul line, um, but also not doing it too much that you kind of open up that advantage for them. I'm not saying I'm not saying hack a hack a uh, Laker. I'm just saying you shouldn't be afraid of a team that is shooting so poorly from the free throw line. Because uh, it's going to haunt them in a close game. And by the way, LeBron James, you, you mentioned that he has been up and down uh, you know, in his career from a free throw line. This is one of the years where he's been down, in my opinion, and his stats show it. In the clutch this season from the foul line, LeBron James, 63%. In the playoffs, in the clutch, in clutch minutes, that's less than five minutes. The game was within five points. LeBron James has gone to the line and shot 50% from the foul line in clutch minutes from the free throw line. That I'm gonna is not good. Spot. I'm going to put you on the spot, though. Um, how many attempts is that? Because I know the Lakers haven't actually played that many clutch minutes, so I wouldn't be surprised have, if that's... I mean, it's not a ton, it's not a ton of attempts. I mean, it's four attempts. You still got to make them. <laughs> you still got to <laughs> make them. a em. tiny sample size. It's not... I mean, it's still 50%. 50% is 50%. And, and, <laughs> and in the regular season, what's the excuse for the regular season? That's still a lot. That's still a lot of free throws where he's gone to the line and clanked them in clutch minutes. That's not good enough. It's I will not say good the, enough for a player of his caliber. I wrote about this when the season was suspended, that it was very weird how LeBron statistically was one of the worst clutch scorers in the league this season. And a big reason for that was his, his jump shot kind of fell off off a cliff. I, I will say it's kind of weird to criticize. I hear you because I, I wrote an entire article about this. It still feels weird to me to criticize LeBron in the clutch because he stepped up time and time again in those situations. And even though he basically couldn't hit a jump shot in the clutch all regular season, we saw what he did against the Nuggets in, in Game 5 um, in the right. previous round when he just dominates the entire fourth quarter with jumper after jumper and gets any shot he wants. So, you know, all the stats say that LeBron hasn't been good in the clutch this season. I still don't know how much I trust those. Hey, I'm, I'm just looking at this free throw percentage across the board, not just LeBron, across the board. Outside of Anthony Davis, I think I'm a little nervous setting guys to the line. Uh, if the game is any close in game four, we mentioned Anthony Davis. He had a horrible game three. What does he need to What does he need to do to bounce back to have a tough or a better performance in game four? I mean, I think the big thing was was foul trouble. Uh, that that, as I said earlier, I think that really took him out of his rhythm. Picking up those two early fouls in the second quarter and picking up the third one in the second quarter, the second quarter not long after um, checking into the game. I also just think, I, I do think that Miami Heat did, made some adjustments that, that kind of messed with him. Again, they, they fronted him in the post rather than just gifting him entry passes. And, and they they had some really well-timed double teams where, you know, they didn't double team him as soon as he got the ball, but it was kind of when he put the ball on the floor, that's when they kind of swarmed to him, took away his space, turned him into a passer. 
and that led to a couple of early turnovers for him in that first quarter. So I think for him, really, is you know staying out of foul trouble would go a long way in having him bounce back. Um, and I, I just generally think he's going to be better prepared for what the Heat are going to throw at him. Because like I said at the top two, this was their adjustment game. You know, the Lakers dominated games one and two. Something clearly had to change for the Heat. They threw out their adjustments in game three. A lot of them worked. But now the Lakers have the game film to kind of go through, know what to expect, um, and, and can kind of build around that. So I, I do think Anthony Davis is going to look like a different player, more along the lines of the guy who looked like he was running away with finals MVP in the first two games. You mentioned the finals MVP. Uh, in, in my opinion, he was as, uh, you know, had, if we had voted on finals MVP after game two, Anthony Davis would have got my vote. Um, he was incredible in the first two games. He was carrying the Lakers to victory. It allowed LeBron to kind of coast. And to me as well, he's been the better player in the entire postseason run. I know that finals MVP is only specific for the final series. But, you know, we can't, we're human. We can't forget about things that we've seen in the first three rounds. And Anthony Davis was incredible in those first three rounds. Uh, and he's a large part of the reason why the Lakers are two wins away from an NBA championship. But he did open up the door for discussion after his game three performance. So in your mind right now, who's the favorite for finals MVP? Is it AD LeBron or the outside chance of Jimmy Butler sinking in the conversation now? I think LeBron would uh, have a fit if Jimmy Butler won Finals MVP um, on a losing team. If that's where this is going to go, so until the Heat actually you know tie this series up or take the lead, it's hard for me to see Jimmy Butler being in this race. So really, this is between LeBron and AD right now. Like you, after Game Two, I would have given AD the slight edge. I think the way that Game Three played out, I really do think it's a toss up at this point. Um, but I do think this is set up really well for LeBron to to win Finals MVP because look. Anthony Davis was the best player on the court for the first two games for the Lakers. I think that's pretty clear. But if LeBron responds to this this loss in Game Three and just takes over these next two games and cements himself as the you know kind of puts the Lakers on his back and be like, hey, don't worry, we've got this. I've been on this stage before. I know what it takes to to close the team out, win two in a row, and win this championship. I think that along with the the narrative of him being the first guy to win Finals MVP on three different teams, I, I think people will go for that. And I I think that's this is very. Like you said, I think it was very, it was quite clearly Davis, although it was still a discussion, but I think Davis had the edge after two games. But I think after that game three, this really has opened it up for LeBron to potentially win finals MVP. And I say that knowing full well that Anthony Davis could be the best player on the court for the Lakers and they could win the next two two games. And I wouldn't be shocked at all if he does take it. Um, I, I just think this is kind of, that game three really did open the door up for LeBron. For all the reasons why you just said, I, I, that's why I believe that Anthony Davis kind of dropped his opportunity at winning the finals MVP this year anyway. Um, that game three is going to stick out in a lot of people's minds because he, he just wasn't there. Even, I mean, the foul trouble was one thing, but he was not engaged the way that he was in the first two games, whether or not it was taking his foot off the gas pedal or he just couldn't get into the rhythm, whatever the case was. He just wasn't the same player. Uh, and, you know, foul trouble is 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 one thing, but... He, he he looked bad across the board. He he that foul trouble is one thing, but you 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 don't rebound. You you don't you don't try to make a, a you know a shot block. You don't you, you don't try to put up shots. You had nine shot attempts in the game. Like that's not good enough for me uh, when you're playing 32 minutes and you're looked at as you know one of the best players in the league. So I think he lost his opportunity at winning Finals MVP by that performance, and it's going to take him you know going crazy a la Jimmy Butler in Game Three in two more wins 
to try and, and, and rip that away out of LeBron's hands if the Lakers he could are do, able by the to way. complete this. He can, but I, I just don't see uh, him, him kind of going that insane uh, over the next two games um, to, 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 to clinch his championship. So I think LeBron James is the front runner once again. Uh, as you said, all those things, the narrative and, and everything that you know people like to ignore, but it definitely goes into these votes. And only a handful of people vote for this finals MVP. It's not like it's opened up like it is for a league MVP where broadcasters, writers, and you know hundreds of people vote on the awards. This is, what, 13 to 11? I think 11 people have a vote. I think it's 11. I think that's right. Yeah. 11 people have a vote. So it's, it's, it's very hard to break narratives when that small amount of people are voting on an award. A lot of them... Um, probably want to make things right for LeBron James because he, he he does uh, he does sort of, in my opinion, sort of I don't want to say deserves it because it feels like he's entitled to it. But he, I mean, he is the face of the league at this point. Uh, he's he's leading this team. Um, you know whether or not the numbers say so. Anthony Davis has had better numbers, but he's leading it from a leadership standpoint, and sometimes that goes into. Uh, some of those, uh, you know, you can't quantify that. So I think LeBron James is going to win the finals MVP if the Lakers can close this series out. They're two wins away from doing so. Um, give me a prediction. Do you think Do you think game four goes the way of the Lakers and, and we are looking at a 3-1 hole for the Heat or, or are they able to tie this thing up at two? I, I do think it's, it's Lakers in game four. I think they'll make some adjustments based on what happened in game three. I think they'll be much more locked in defensively because um, they, they did kind of, it was funny, Jimmy Butler kind of played the LeBron game in game three where he was calling for pick and rolls and playing mismatch and just attacking the weakest defender on the Lakers. So I think the, you know, little things like that, I think the Lakers will put up more resistance when it comes to to those switches. Um, and I think Anthony Davis bouncing back, LeBron bouncing back, um, even if Bam Adebayo does return, who knows what kind of, uh, how he's going to play given his health and everything. So I, th- I still think it's the Lakers taking it tonight um, and taking a 3-1 lead in this series. The fan in me would like the Heat to win this game. I'm with you. Um, I'm going with my uh, my brain, not my heart. And um, I think the Lakers go up 3-1 after a, uh, a gutsy performance in game four. All right, enough about the finals. We had a big hiring last week uh, that we do have to touch on. And Doc Rivers was you know unemployed for what felt like five minutes before getting an opportunity to coach another NBA team. He's leaving the West Coast. He's going back east to a potential championship contender. Uh, my championship, uh, you know, finalists uh, this season, Same. they dropped the ball on me, uh, the Philadelphia 76ers. And they have a new coach, same team. He doesn't bring a new system. What do you think about Doc Rivers in Philadelphia? I think it's a good high. Um, you know, Doc Rivers is a very good coach. We know that. Um, I think it was Chris Vernon on the, the Ringer NBA show made a really good point the other day in saying that this is a guy who's, one, been in the league a really long time, but two, also coached many different teams and many different players. You know, he, he's coached guys like Paul Pierce, Tracy McGrady, obviously Kawhi Leonard and, and um, Paul George this year. He's coached talented big men in Kevin Garnett, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, as well as one of the greatest point guards of all time in Chris Paul. So this is a guy who's played, you know, coached decades in the NBA, variety of different players. And I think, you know, even though Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid um, aren't necessarily the smoothest fit and figuring out ways to maximize them on the same team is going to be difficult. I think Doc is suited pretty well to, to figure some of those things out. 
Whether or not he can get them to the point where they're, you know, competing for a championship, I'm a little bit more skeptical. But after the season that they just had when, like you, I thought they were going to come out of the East, I think Doc Rivers is, is the kind of coach who can kind of get them back on track um, and get this team back up to, you know, being one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference um, and the type that we, the type of team that we can see, you know, talk ourselves into making a deep run in the playoffs. Again, I don't know if that's going to result in a title as long as he's head coach, but I do think it will kind of help them steer the ship in the right direction. Yeah, I think um, you know I'm 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 a little bit more skeptical about the hire of Doc Rivers, just in the sense that uh, I I do agree that he is going to uh, bring a certain sort of importance to the role. Not, and that's no disrespect to Brett Brown, but he Brett Brown isn't Doc Rivers in terms of you know his success as a head coach in the NBA um, or or as a player for that matter. Uh, and I think he'll be able to. Doc Rivers will be able to relate a little bit more to the players uh, that the Sixers do have, um, and even from young and old, uh, and, and kind of bring them together. It didn't seem like that team was too together over the last couple of years. It seemed like they always had factions in that locker room. And mm-hmm. what Doc Rivers has been able to do in his last two stops, and, and I'm excluding Orlando, but in Boston, he was able to kind of bring that team together with the Mbutu uh, sort of championship run that, you know, in a short period of time, bring those egos together. He did it uh, for the Clippers safe this year. Um, you know, he was able to kind of get that team to be on the same page for a, a, a time. Uh, until things fell apart between you know Chris Paul and, and 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 the Blake Griffin regime, and he was able to get them back on the same page when there were the scrappy underdogs before Kawhi Leonard and Paul George showed up. So he does have a, a you know a sort of a track record to to be able to get guys on the same page at least for a short period of time, and that's what they need more in Philly than I think anything else. It's a very talented team. Um, right. I know I have concerns about system. Uh, but you can hire assistant coaches for that, and we still have to see what the coaching staff he brings to the table can do. But I think more importantly than anything is just getting uh, consistent effort out of that Sixers team and, and getting them to believe in, in, in team first um, before anything else. Because over the last couple of years, we've watched them sort of have uh, those eye-roll moments between each other, but also the inconsistency that they've had over the last two years in the level of play, not just at home and away, but they could go on a, a five-game winning streak and then look like a team that should be in the lottery uh, you know, the very next week. So uh, hopefully Doc Rivers is able to clean that up, and then we can see how wide that championship window actually is. Right, I think he's going to hold guys more accountable um, than they might have been held under Brett Brown. And by the way, one thing that I've seen a lot of people talk about is that Tobias Harris had the best seasons of his career under Doc Rivers. And I know, you know, we I, last season in particular before he was traded to Philly, when the Clippers were kind of, you know, surpassing everyone's expectations, there was talk about Tobias Harris potentially being an all-star. And I don't necessarily think he is going to be an all-star, but it certainly helps that, you know, bringing in a coach who has... Uh, who, who Tobias Harris has played really well for in the past, considering how much money they've committed to him. So if he can kind of unlock them and figure out ways to get Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid going together, that's another step in the right direction for this franchise. You mean to say that you almost cut me off to talk about Tobias Harris? I, I potentially did. Being in a, you got to be kidding me. Um, all right, we got to get out of here. But a reminder <laughs> that uh, the WNBA Finals is also ongoing as we speak. Game three of that Finals and potentially 
the clinching win for the Seattle Storm. That goes down tonight. So watch that game ahead of the NBA Finals game. So you got a little doubleheader basketball action going on. That game tips off at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time. Catch it on ESPN and up in Canada, TSN 3 and TSN 5. Scott, uh, pleasure. We uh, by this time next week, not only will we might have a WNBA champion, but we might have an NBA champion to talk about and potentially be able to wrap up the bubble. Or we'll be talking about a game seven in the NBA, which will be fun if we get there. I don't think it's happening, but uh, one could dream. Who knows? One crate. One can definitely dream. Crazy things have happened. Yeah, yeah, they definitely have. Uh, we'll get out of here and remind you that you could subscribe to the podcast if you missed any part of the show, NBA Sound System, wherever podcasts are found. Again, Sound System FC for all the football fans out there. Go ahead, rate, subscribe, and review. And, of course, tell a friend. Spread the word. Catch us back here next Tuesday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific, right here on NBA.com Global in Canada, in Australia, in India, and, of course, across the world on NBA Sound System. For Scott Rafferty, I am Carlin Gay. We will see you next week right here on NBA Sound System Live.